Well, today we're going to continue our study in the book of 1 Samuel, but I wanted to just take a moment to let you know how profound this book is. Um, there's some hesitation when you start to preach and teach through Old Testament narrative, uh, but it is a truly a blessing uh, in my life to study the characters in this book, to look at God's activities through his history, uh, not through mine, not through my lens, but through his God-breathed lens through the work of the Holy Spirit. We have these books before us, and they're purposeful, uh, they're needed, they're difficult at times, and I understand that. But it is a narrative of God's sovereign history. The principles of obedience and walk of faith are just as relevant for us today as they were then. We're not called to defeat physical giants, most likely. Uh, that won't happen in our time, nor will a father require the proof of the death of an enemy for the hand of his daughter. But the heart issues are the same. We also have to remember that to God, this is not ancient history. For if a thousand years is a day to an eternal God, as scripture speaks clearly, these events are just days old to him. The character of God and his attributes are unchanging. He doesn't read these events and wish his actions were different. Sometimes that is difficult for us to accept. We have and we will struggle through some of this to hear the words that are in scripture. They offend our, our minds to some degree at times. But the book is certainly a testimony that God does work all things together for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. The negative events are as a result of sin. My contribution to negative events is ever before me. In fact, we can see ourselves in the sin nature of every character that is in this life-living example. Last week, Eric brought us through 1 Samuel 17. We saw faithlessness and the fear of man as contrasted with faithfulness and the fear of God. We saw how obedience contrasts to disobedience. Obedience working its way out for our good and for God's glory. We, got, we saw God's sovereignty in election and how a shepherd boy would rise in character and in victory in the defense of God's glory. If we're honest, we can see ourselves in these characters, self-grandizement of Goliath. In the Israelites, our army, fear and inaction, self-protection, idolatry, all these things lead to destruction. For we are too just as dead in our trespasses and sins as all of them. And if it were not by God's grace alone, we would have met similar ends. Arrogance is an enemy. Pride cometh, and there are many falls. We like to create in ourselves in our own minds, the decisions and the direction that a holy God should go. It's difficult for us to be humble before him. One key to the point of the book of First and Second Samuel is to humble ourselves before a creator God. The second one of many is to be comforted in our standing in Christ. 
a necessary redeemer. The gospel is ever before us as we study this book, the need for it. So as we turn in our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 18, I will read this portion of scripture. I'm going to take a little deviation today. I'm going to move to another Old Testament book uh, to provide a similar example of something that's going on. And then we're going to get to three points in this message. So uh, be patient as we navigate uh, the terrain. Starting in verse 1 of 1 Samuel chapter 18, after David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from, their, from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs, and with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can, be, what more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in, the, in his house. The ESV says raving in his house. While David was playing the lyre, as he usually did, Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had departed from Saul. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men. And David led the troops in their campaigns. And everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. When Saul, when Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. Saul said to David, here is my older daughter Merib. I will give her to you in marriage. Only serve me bravely and fight the battles of the Lord. For Saul said to himself, I will not raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines do that. But David said to Saul, Who am I? And what is my family or my clan in Israel that I should become king, the king's son-in-law? So when the time came for Merib, Saul's daughter, to be given to David, she was given in marriage to Adriel of Mahal. Of Mahal. I'm not good with some of these names, by the way. Now Saul's daughter, Michael, was in love with David. 
And when they told Saul about it, he was pleased. I will give her to him, he thought, so that she may be a snare to him, and so that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. So Saul said to David, Now you have a second opportunity to become my son-in-law. Then Saul ordered his attendants, Speak to David privately and say, Look, the king likes you, and his attendants all love you. Now become his son-in-law. They repeated these words to David, but David said, Do you think it's a small matter to become the king's son-in-law? I am only a poor man and little known. When Saul's servants told him what David had said, Saul replied, Say to David, the king wants no other price for the bride than a hundred Philistine foreskins to take revenge on his enemies. Saul's plan was to have David fall by the hand of the Philistines. When the attendants told David these things, he was pleased to become the king's son-in-law. So before the allotted time elapsed, David took his men with him and went out and killed 200 Philistines and brought back their foreskins. They counted out the full number to the king so that David might become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave him his daughter Michael in marriage. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michael loved David, Saul became still more afraid, and he remained his enemy the rest of his days. The Philistine commanders continued to go out to battle, and as often as they did, David met with more success than the rest of Saul's officers, and his name became well known. So is the reading of God's holy word. Eric worked us through chapter 17, which uh, concluded with Saul inquiring as to the identity of the young man who defeated Goliath. In verse 56 of chapter 17, the king said, Find out who this young man is. As soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul. And David, still holding the Philistine's head, Whose son are you, young man? Saul asked him. David said, I am the son of your servant, Jesse of Bethlehem. So before we dive a little deeper, I just wanted to explore some of the historical reference points that are relevant as you study your Bible. I want to just talk through a little bit about the book of Ruth, the book that is right before this one. And I've entitled this message, Hearts Revealed. And there are many, many, many hearts revealed in our scripture but there's some parallels between this passage and some history that I thought would be relevant. And so I'm going to take some time to just walk through this. Ruth was a Moabite woman. She, has, she was not of the house of Israel. She had no tribal significance, no clan. She put her trust in her mother-in-law and more significantly in her mother-in-law's God. This unique kinship led to a tight relationship between Ruth and Naomi. In a sense, this was a sisterhood, a mentorship-type relationship that was very special. This relationship was born out of trial, was born out of tragedy, and it was even born out of disobedience. It was a famine that led Naomi and her husband and their family to leave their tribe and to move to Moab. This was, in fact, disobedience. It was actually poor judgment. They moved to Moab 
where the yoking of different views would occur. The two sons would marry Moabite women, women who did not share the faith in the one true God. This was not God's desire, but it is the reality of God's providential care. While in Moab, Naomi came into bad circumstances. She lost her husband and her two sons. Tough duty for Naomi. Estranged from her kin, living through a famine, losing her husband, losing her two sons, and then returning to Bethlehem destitute and bitter. These bitter circumstances led to a very special relationship between Naomi and her daughter-in-laws. In chapter 1 we read, Then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Daughters-in-law, there's two of them, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show, kind, show you kindness as you show kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant you that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud, and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you want to come with me? I am, going, am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and gave birth to two sons, would you wait for them to grow up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord has turned his hand against me. At this, the women wept aloud, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you from me. Then Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, and she stopped urging her. So the two women went on to Bethlehem. Scripture records this incredible bond between Ruth and Naomi. What a blessing for these two grieving women to have one another. Each other in a very dark time. One losing a husband, the other one losing a husband and two sons. Naomi and Ruth's motives here are fully exposed. What we see in, in verses 16 through 18 is a vow a covenant promise that Ruth makes to Naomi. We don't do this very often. Actually reminds me a little bit of church membership. There's a covenant commitment between people. But it's scriptural as well. We make promises and we break promises. But Ruth's promises was deeper. It was not a casual conversation. It was born out of trial 
deep despair, tears, intimacy. We know that this intimate friendship led to Ruth meeting her husband Boaz. So a providential lineage began. God weaving good through very difficult circumstances, redeeming that which is evil and creating good. For Naomi, travel is hard. It appears to be about 60 to 70 miles from where they were in Moab to return to Bethlehem. Work is menial. Grief is at hand. And God's discipline seems unbearable. She has aged dramatically over the years in Moab and was not instantly recognizable when she returned. And through all, through all this, we see grace. A gospel light coming out of tragedy and kindled in the heart of a Moabite woman. Your God will be my God. What a statement of testimony of new faith. Ruth left the worship of false Moabite gods and received Jehovah. Boaz, a stable and successful Bethlehemite, marries a new convert, Ruth, a Moabite woman. They have a son named Obed. And to Obed was born David's father, Jesse. And to Jesse was born David. So when Saul inquires as to who David is, David replied, I am the son of your servant, Jesse, of Bethlehem. We need to pause and just see the hand of the living God. Working through unlikely circumstances, working through incredible peril, working through nobodies. Creating a record of scripture for all time. Working towards ultimate redemption through the work of Jesus Christ. As Eric said last week, we caution regarding types of Christ in our theological approach. When scripture uses it, we're fine with it, but we don't want to stretch the story too deep. But we are seeing the work of God through people and through relationships woven together. Our three points today in the message will be engage the battle. You will be wounded, but you will find grace and a true friend. Number two, Watch the motives of your heart. Allow scripture to narrate your life. Number three, examine yourself rightly and repent. Engage the battle. You will be wounded, but you will find grace and a true friend. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with him. And he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off his robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Please notice in this first section of the chapter the relationship between David and Jonathan. Despite a victory over Goliath and celebration that was there, War is gruesome and requires great endurance. War during this time was all hand-to-hand. Spear tip, arrows, swords. I have not been in that circumstance. I know some people who have, and it changes your life. It's a bitter circumstance. 
the camaraderie with those in the battle or those who go through a difficult time is a blessing and a necessity. In fact, it's kind of a common grace. David's older brother, brothers were also in the battle. The impact on a nation and on parents is profound. Just talk to a parent who has a son or a daughter overseas in conflict. David's older brothers were in that battle. As a matter of fact, David had gone in chapter 17 to provide them some food relief. David's older brothers were part of a battle that Samuel had warned them about earlier. You want a king? You're going to have to fight his battles. You're going to have to listen to him. The people were living out what they wanted. They had rejected God, and they have a king. Jonathan had already been through a lot. He was not fearful, typically in battle like his father, but pursued victory. He was no doubt older than David, but nonetheless a contemporary of the shepherd boy. In chapter 13, we learn that only Saul and Jonathan at that time at the Battle of Michmash had swords and spears. They were that short on supplies. Jonathan was a leader in bitter battles with the Philistines. It was Jonathan who created the confusion at the Battle of Michmash, which led to victory. It was Jonathan who ate honey and questioned his father's order regarding nourishment for the troops. Jonathan knew the character of his father. He knew that although he was next in line for the kingship, that this was not going to occur. For Samuel had already confronted Saul. In 1 Samuel 14, we learn a little bit more about Saul's family. Jonathan was the oldest. He had two brothers and two sisters, firstborn Merib and the name of the younger Michael. Now, war against the Philistines was severe, Scripture tells us, all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any mighty man or any valiant man, he attached him to his staff. Despite all the war and the poor leadership of his father, Jonathan was content with his standing in life. The upstart David was not a threat to Jonathan, but a friend. Not dissimilar to Naomi and Ruth, Jonathan and David were knit together through these difficult circumstances. And nobody from Bethlehem becomes best friends with a prince. An older woman from Bethlehem becomes a mentor with an unlikely Moabite woman. Covenant relationships, deep promises, deep pain coming from all of it. The text says that Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. This is a band of brothers relationship, a true loyal friendship. It was a relationship driven out of engaged battles and difficult circumstances. It was a relationship that was born out of mutual respect. Proverbs 18.24, a man of too many friends comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. As Ruth loved Naomi, so Jonathan loved David. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off his robe he was wearing and he gave it to David, along with his tunic, his sword, his bow, and his belt. 
As Ruth made a covenant with Naomi, so we see a covenant made between Jonathan and David. The covenant was followed by the passing of the clothing and the weapons. These items were rare and of great distinction. These were princely items. They weren't common weapons. They weren't common clothes. If, you, if I give you my clothes, there is no real distinction. But if a general gives his uniform to a private, there is a significant relevance. A prince's weapons and a prince's clothing. This implies that the start of this friendship was even public. It also concedes that Jonathan's status as a prince, it also concedes that Jonathan's status as a prince to God's chosen king was not going to be a reality for him. The office of prince meant less to Jonathan than the office of love between him and a friend. Do you have a friend like this? Are you a friend like this? Are you engaged deep enough in any type of spiritual battle to encourage a friend like this? Do you have this kind of fellowship? Are we more prone to hold a status as opposed to loving others? Are you engaged in gospel ministry so as to draw the ire of the enemy? Jonathan and David were engaged in the battle. Jonathan shows a more excellent way. Self-sacrificial love for another. This so pleases the Lord. As we've read in 1 Corinthians as well, it, love is a more excellent way. Jonathan was humble. He laid himself out for a friend. From Philippians chapter 2 we, we read, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfish or, selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not re regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross, a holy God, condescending to lowly men, being born in a village of Bethlehem in a stable, condescending to the point of humility to create great joy, as Tim talked about today. And for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jonathan and David's relationship embodied the intent of true fellowship. I was thinking just this morning about at the end of the book of James, if any of you are hurting, if any of you are beaten for the gospel's sake, 
go to others for prayer. Have true fellowship. To Jonathan, position was second to loyalty and friendship. Fellowship was important. A band of brotherhood or sisterhood are almost always born out of bitter circumstances. Life will not be easy. Tough times are used to change your perspective. The disciples walked with Christ, they ministered with him, and they suffered on account of him. They were his friends. Lazarus was a friend of Christ. Mary, his mother, was a friend of Christ. Mary Magdalene was a friend of Christ. Jesus washed the disciples' feet. They were deep friends in deep, intimate fellowship with one another. It's interesting that at times, liberal theologians get a hold of a particular story in Scripture and misuse it. This section of 1 Samuel 18 is often used to excuse or to somehow justify homosexual relationships. There's nothing in this section that leads to that conclusion other than liberal thinking in some office. But scripture doesn't support it. John 15, Jesus says to his disciples, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I called you friends. For all things I have heard from my father I have made known to you. Friendship is always based on truth, not manipulation. We'll see a contrast of this in scripture as we move forward with the life of Saul. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed that you that you would be that you would go and bear fruit, and that fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name may be given to you. And then he repeats it, this I command you, that you love one another. David engaged in the battle for God's honor. Jonathan was engaged in the battle for Israel. The two men walking together in a difficult space. They were wounded by everything around them. They were knit together in character and in love. If you engage in the battle of living your faith courageously, you will be wounded. But you will find great fellowship for all eternity. Engage the battle and you will find grace and joy. You may lose acquaintances, maybe acquaintance friends. You may lose status or position. You may have family reject you. You may lose finances. You may have to leave your home and comforts. The battle takes preparation and engagement. Are you prepared for the battle? Hebrews 13 says, make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For, for he himself said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you so that we can confidently say the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Do you believe that? What will man do to me? Are you narrating correctly your own heart? 
easy to read these verses. It's hard to live. And by God's grace, we have repentance before us. Three times in chapter 18, the narrator says, the Lord was with David. What a blessing. Point number two, allow the word of God to narrate your motives. In this next section of the text, we see David's continued success and Saul's insane, murderous jealousy. It says, starting in verse 5, whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. He had to. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officer as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from the, all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul and singing and dancing with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has, has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. David became a respected leader, pleasing to the troops and Saul's officer. David was a preferred commander, creating confidence in the victory celebration that was heard. It's not a point of the text, but just as an observation, wouldn't it have been wonderful if the song was not comparative, but praiseworthy? Not comparative to man between two people, we so often do that. But how about seeking the glory of God? It equalizes gifts as well. David's success created jealousy and anger in Saul. The book of Samuel is a historical narration. It has a narrator. The text provides a narration of Saul's motives. The motives of Saul's hearts are in full display. The writer, guided by the Holy Spirit, has a perfect window into Saul's heart. From the text, we learn that Saul was displeased. Saul was jealous of the praise of David. Saul raved in his mind against David. He was preoccupied with his self-idolatry. The song of the women ought to have been brought forward by praise. That is true, probably, but nonetheless, it was Saul's problem. Saul's sins caused distance between him and God. In fact, Saul rarely references God. The window into the narration of chapter 18, you don't see Saul doing anything in praise, in entreating the Lord, in repentance. No activity, just self-talk. Everything is about Saul. Everything is about preserving power. It is easier for us to see Saul's motives than to see our own, for Scripture puts Saul's motives right before us. But oftentimes, we're dull in our senses to our own motives. We can't see them. How would you like, or I like, a narrator to write this about us, to expose the darkness of the sin that is lingering about in us, to narrate it where there is enmity and strife and jealousy, fits of internal anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy, all these types of things, mental raving against one another. Aren't you grateful for the work of Christ whose blood covers the narration? Proverbs 16 says, and Tim referenced Proverbs 16 before, could have read that today, what a great chapter. 
All the ways of a man are clean in his own sight. But the Lord weighs the motives. Commit your works to the Lord, and your plans will be established. This proverb gives us a key answer. Make your heart motive to commit your works to the Lord, and your plans will be established. Mortify the sin that's within. Kill it with right motives, and do the right thing, and don't give evil a foothold. Look at Saul, tossed about by every wind of threat, every circumstance, unstable in all his ways. Look at Jonathan, content. Ephesians chapter 4 gives us a clue into this, into the New Testament. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles, that is, as unbelievers. Also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of ignorance that is in them, because of hardness of their heart. Saul had a hard heart. And they becoming calloused. Saul's heart was calloused have been given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. Saul was so deceitful so manipulative and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self which is in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness and truth Saul had committed his works unto himself and he will reap the reward of his folly the next day in verse 10 an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul he was raving in the house while David was playing the lyre as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand and he hurled it saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. And David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him but had departed from Saul. So he went, so he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men. And David led the troops in their campaigns. In everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he had led them in their campaigns. Saul holds a spear. David holds an instrument. Saul is not unskilled in the use of a spear. The Lord was definitely with David as he escaped twice the attacks. Saul was terrified. Some translations describe Saul as in fearful awe. The more success David had, the less hold Saul had on his kingship. Saul's conscience was seared. He was calloused. Saul's anger toward David was murderous. Saul throws a spear at him twice while he played music. 
often a reminder of Genesis chapter 4. But for Cain and for his offering, the Lord had no regard. So Cain became angry, and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and it desire and its desire is for you. But you must master it. Cain told Abel, his brother. And it came about that when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against, excuse me, against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Murderous jealousy. The Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? Here we see deceit, manipulation. He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your own hand. The murderous jealousy found in humanity is nothing new. The heart of Saul is nothing new. In fact, it's predictable. Saul said to David, here's my older daughter, Merib. I will give her to you in marriage. Only serve me bravely and fight the Lord's battles. Here's the motive. For, for Saul said to himself, I will not raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines do that. Saul's jealousy has taken over his entire family relationships. He has no regard for the happiness of Merib. No thought of oneness meant for the home. Saul's promise from chapter 17 was that the man who kills Goliath would earn the hand of his daughter. David has already earned the hand of his daughter. Saul had no regard for keeping promises, no regard for covenant commitments. Saul's children were merely pawns in a destructive, jealous feud. Using his children for information gathering, using the oldest daughter like fishing bait to attract David to the battlefield where he could be killed. It is deceptive to say that you have to do more battle to earn my daughter when you already just killed Goliath. I suspect that Saul's daughters were appealing to the eye. To be a son-in-law to a king is certainly status, but to marry, a prince, marry princesses would be, have been a special appeal. But David said to Saul, who am I? that is my life or my father's family in Israel, that I should be the king's son-in-law. So it came about at the time when Merib, Saul's daughter, would have been given to David, that she was given to Adriel for a wife. Looks like the Lord was with David in the avoidance of a marriage to Merib. Certainly a bitter rejection, but nonetheless, David's humility was at hand. It is likely that Saul had more trust in Merib than in his younger daughter, Michael. But it appears that Michael's affections for David will work to Saul's favor. Why not use the affections of your daughter for your favor? Now Michael, Saul's daughter, loved David. When they told Saul, the thing was agreeable to him. 
Saul thought, I will give her to him that she may become a snare to him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. A snare is a trap. It's a baited trap. Michael's love for David is the bait and the Philistines are the net. This is a political arrangement. Thus Saul's command commands his servants to talk to David, to talk him into it. David is popular. The king has a popular son-in-law. Michael marries well. He will be killed in battle, and I have rid myself of the threat to the kingdom. The difference is that Michael loves David. Michael pursues the conversation of being with David. Therefore Saul said to David for a second time, You may be my son-in-law today. Then Saul commanded his servants, Speak to David secretly, saying, Behold, the king delights in you, and all his servants love you. Now therefore become the king's son-in-law. Let's look at, listen to the deception. You're going to send somebody else to tell lies. Speak to David secretly, saying, Behold, the king delights in you. The king wanted him dead. And all his servants love you. That's true. Now therefore become the king's son-in-law. So Saul's servants spoke these words to David. But David said, it's, Is it trivial in your sight to become the king's son-in-law since I am a poor man and lightly esteemed? The servants of Saul reported to him according to the words which David had spoken. In verse 25, Saul then said, Thus you shall say to David, The king does not desire any dowry except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines to take vengeance on the king's enemies. Now Saul planned to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. Saul adds a condition of the proof of a death of a hundred men in battle. The conversation drips with lies, with evil intent. What a distinction between the fellowship of Jonathan and David and the relationship between Saul and David. When his servants told David these words, it, was ple it pleased David to become the king's son-in-law. Before the days had expired, David rose up and went, he and his men, and they struck down 200 men among the Philistines. Now, David was an overachiever. A hundred were required. His men killed two. He wants to please his commander. He wants to please his first future father-in-law. David's respect for Saul is admirable, and it continues throughout the, the next chapters to come. Then David brought their foreskins and gave them in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. So Saul gave him Michael, his daughter, for a wife. When Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. Thus said Saul, thus Saul said, thus Saul was David's enemy continually, all the time. The king is the enemy of the servant. The commanders of the Philistines went out to battle, and it happened as often as they went out that David behaved himself more wisely than all the servants of Saul. So his name was highly esteemed. The next point, examine yourself rightly and repent. 
It is easy to point fingers at Saul. The narration certainly does. We will see in the latter chapters that David is hunted by Saul, who pursued him vigorously. After David becomes king, he himself is caught in his own snares. In 2 Samuel 11, he sees Bathsheba, who is bathing across the way, standing on his rooftop and finds her pleasing. He pursues her and has an affair with her. In order to cover up the unwanted pregnancy, he sends her husband to the front lines of the battles with the Philistines. It takes him a little while and the help of a friend, another trusted friend in conversation and in conviction, David sees and repents. He seeks the Lord and his repentant heart is exposed in Psalm 51 of which we heard last Sunday or the Sunday before. It was another friend, a prophet Nathan, who had the courage to confront King David with the gravity of his sin. One of the lessons from this is to see that we ought to embrace reproof. We ought to find correction, a friend. Treat it like a life preserver. This is what friends do. They grab people out of dire situations and pull them out. Some things in life can be learned only in relationship to other people. It's when you realize you haven't loved your neighbor as you ought that you begin to ask, why did I have that fit of anger? Why do I feel such enmity against that person? Why do I have such a hard time loving or forgiving or even being kind to someone who repeatedly treats me with disrespect? What is motivating my response to other people? The purposes in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. Psalm 20, verse 5, wise counsel, but how does he draw out the purpose, the motives, the reasons in a person's heart? Sinful responses don't happen for no particular reason. There are always reasons for the things that we say and do, even if we don't see the reasons clearly. Those reasons are not on the surface of the well and are therefore not easy to draw out. They run deep. The purpose of a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. David writes a psalm that gives a window into this. It's going to be an interesting conversation after we <clears throat> come to the point of absolutely basking in God's glory in the kingdom to have conversations with these people. David says in Psalm 139, 1 through 4, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Knitted together in the Savior's love. David, not perfect, but redeemed full of praise and full of prayer. In Psalm 86, teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I will give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with all my heart. And I will glorify your name forever. 
and your loving kindness towards me is great. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. Questions today, are you engaged enough in the battle to be wounded, enough to need godly fellowship? Are you watching the motives of your own heart? Are you allowing scripture to narrate your life? Are you examining yourself rightly and embracing reproof, confessing and repenting, and finding, as Tim said, true joy? I want to just close with a familiar song, a song of friendship. And I would like to have, sometimes when you read a, a hymn, this is a hymn, um, when you read a hymn, you don't really understand necessarily the character behind it, but it will be interesting to see um, the information. This is a very familiar one, but one that resonates with this passage. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trial and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? Precious Savior, still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Do thy friends despise forsake thee? Take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms, he'll take and shield thee. Thou wilt find a solace there. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord, for your word and for your providential care. We thank you that you too have modeled these things for us, that the life of Christ is a model of grace, of love, of commitment. We thank you for your promises that you have never, ever let go, that you never not do what you say you're going to do. Lord, we thank you for your grace and mercy to us, sinners as we are, arrogant at times, prideful. Lord, I pray that we would become more dependent on you, I thank you for reproof. I thank you for conviction. I thank you for correction. I thank you for discipline. Lord, I thank you for anything that draws us close to you. Lord, I pray that we would be friends in fellowship with one another, not necessarily seeing church as a genre or a place of activity, but a place of great grace, a great commitment, of great friendship. Lord, I thank you for this fellowship here at GCF. I pray, Lord, that we would embody all these things to your honor and glory alone. In your name I pray, amen.